In the late 2000s, smart meters were taking the utility industry by storm. In 2007, utilities had deployed about 2 million of them. But by the end of the decade, just three years later, 20 million customers had smart meters. And a new data management company called eMeter wanted to get in on the action. They saw that there was value not just in, you know, being able to have these wireless meters, but there was more value in the data from those kind of meters. In 2006, one of eMeter's co-founders called up Sharon Talbot and asked her to get coffee. Sharon knew him from their grad school days when they had crossed paths at the University of California, San Francisco's School of Medicine. She figured he just wanted to catch up. But the night before they were supposed to meet, he told her he was considering something bigger. He wanted to bring her on the e-meter team. And I was like, okay, so this is actually an interview. <laughs> and so I had no suit. I had nothing. I called up a friend at like 9.30 at night who, who was my size and asked her if I could borrow a suit. Um, it still smelled like her dog. Now, at the time, Sharon didn't know anything about utilities. She'd studied anthropology in grad school, and after a few research gigs working with refugees in San Francisco, she spent the better part of the last decade shuttling three kids to school, baseball practice, and the theater. But she figured, why not? But at the end of the interview, I was like, this is so interesting to me just as a, an anthropologist. And I, I could see the change that this is going to make uh, in society, but I don't have any qualifications for this job. That didn't matter. Emeter's co-founder, Chris King, and his team were interested in Sharon's background, human behavior. So they offered her a job on the spot. So a week later, I was working for them. <laughs> I went from 10 years of being at home, you know, with Cheerios in my pockets to working 40 hours a week at this uh, software company. Getting into this job, learning the role, it was daunting, but I also felt excited because I had sort of a anthropological interest in how this would all play out. And the first few projects that I had, um, that they had me working on were a bunch of pilot projects with utilities on time of use rates. And it's like trying out different ways of working with customers um, to bring them along this journey of um, being aware of their energy, managing their energy, working with the utility on, get, on getting the utility's goals as well as the customer's own goals met. It was just super interesting. And um, I did find a lot of personal satisfaction in it. So much satisfaction, in fact, that she chose to work on this problem for the next 17 years, eventually ended up at a company we all know, Salesforce. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, that they don't innovate fast enough. But the truth is, the industry is full of a lot of great people trying to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer-centric. This week, I'm talking with Sharon Talbot, Director of Industry Marketing for Energy and Utilities at Salesforce. Sharon works with electricity companies to provide more services and products to their customers. I'm Danny Lewis. And I'm Alex Osola. On the Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast, we explore the projects reimagining the world of tomorrow. Like using sound to rejuvenate coral reefs. Moving microchips beyond silicon. Silicon is no longer energy efficient. And how animals are helping treat human diseases. The future of everything is happening right now. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The smart meter unlocked the potential to understand how people use energy in their homes, and it created opportunities for utilities to offer more services based on a customer's individual needs and consumption habits. These services, like energy efficiency and demand response, also help reduce the carbon footprint of the grid. I talked with Sharon about how her background as an anthropologist shapes her work in the utility sector and how the digital transition has evolved over the past decade. Let's uh, let's dig into your kind of further background a little bit. So I'm also a proud liberal arts major. Uh, I had an English, uh, I have an English degree. I was an English major in, in college. Um, so two-part question, um, why were you interested in linguistics and anthropology as your core areas of study? Um, and how many questions did you get from family members about how are you make money with those degrees? Because it wasn't engineering or math or something <laughs> more uh, substantial in their mind. <laughs> Totally relate to that. Yeah, liberal arts majors are getting the short shrift. But you know what? It's so interesting now um, that they want to make it STEAM and not STEM, right? I think people are realizing that technology cannot be separated from values and culture. I'm appreciating that. And I'm seeing that in our next generation. But yeah, why linguistics? Um, It was the coolest major. And now, I mean, okay, so all the stuff that people love now about natural natural language processing and artificial intelligence, that was all the stuff that we studied in linguistics. How does language work to convey um, thoughts and concepts and values and information to other people? Like this this fundamental... uh, form of of human connection, you know, um, there's so many aspects of it from the phonology, um, just the the physics and biology of it to things like logic and intelligence and what your language says about your culture and your values and things like that. So there was a lot of interesting things in linguistics that uh, probably people appreciate more now because everyone's really into all these chatbots and AI, and a lot of that is based on linguistic principles, right? I used chat GPT to write my dad a poem for his 70th birthday, and it was pretty awesome. So (laughs) I love kind of bridging the gap between (laughs) linguistics and what's happening now with all the AI tech. It's pretty incredible. But as an English major, did you assess this poem? Like, was it a really, was it? Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. Okay. I did, I did. Um, Yes, we actually did a recording of it as well. So it was like a lot of fun to kind of see it come to life. And I did make some edits to it. I didn't just pass it off uh, by hand, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Um, So what kind of work did you do after college? I worked with, um, I had my anthropology degree actually was um, about Vietnamese actually South Asian refugees in general in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. And it was a whole ethnography of the families there. And um, I was working for a lot of uh, like refugee resettlement, um, English as a second language, workplace training programs that were based in San Francisco. And I also worked for some startups that were for like children's museums and experiential theater and places like that in uh, in San Francisco. And I did all of that, you know, thinking that that was sort of going to be my path. Never thinking that energy was going to be my path. I had not thought twice or even once about energy and utilities. So 10 years later, after taking time off work to raise your kids, you got the call from Chris King. You went to eMeter. What did your time at eMeter teach you specifically about utilities and how best to work with them? We did one pilot uh, with a utility in Canada, and um, 
I felt terrible because I had to, <laughs> I had to pretend that I was like, we couldn't let on that our operations for the pilot were not in Canada because Canadians are sticklers about that. And, uh, but I ended up having to do a lot, a lot of customer service. So we were trying out different designs for bills. I think now people are used to sort of these O-Power type bills where you kind of show your usage and you show what the rate was at a different time and you have like these rate blocks, right? Um, But we were experimenting with different ways of doing that. And that was hilarious too, because we were doing like the graphics ourselves and producing all of these from Excel spreadsheets of like 800 customers, you know, usage that we were getting from meter data. You know, we were like creating the vision for what this could be. But I also had to to be on hand on the phone um, if people had questions. And so I, I did actually take a lot of calls from Canadians who thought I was like right there in Ottawa with them. I, I used to have to know like what the weather was so that, you know, I could have a context for the caller coming in. Um, and uh, but like learning from their questions and hearing from different people who there were some really, really like nerdy people who were, you know, I had a guy who was like, well, I'm looking at my meter, but I have my uh, I have submetered all my own appliances and I don't think this is reconciling right and all the stuff. So you have people like that. But then you had other people who were like, like my mom used to call the the, you know, Comcast people and be like, could you help me also with my television box? And like the, you know, like, so we had all of that. So it was interesting. It really reinforced for me how much the energy consumer and utility consumer, like you, you definitely have to take into account everyone's whole lived experience. It's, you're never just interacting with them on your bill transaction. It's like a whole host of things contributing to that experience, right? Of energy consumption. Yeah, and it speaks to the importance of personalization in this space too, right? You can't talk to the guy with the submetered uh, <laughs> setup the same as you can to your mom, right? Like yeah. two very different messages and way of engaging in order to get your point across. Right. Hey, it's Brad with a podcast recommendation. If you're curious how big businesses are encouraging renewable energy while confronting climate change, then you really should be listening to the Climate Rising podcast from our friends at Harvard Business School. Climate Rising is a great show that gives you a behind-the-scenes view into how some of the world's best and brightest business leaders are doing and what more they should be doing to combat climate change. Hosted by Harvard Business School professor Mike Toffel, Climate Rising dives into the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents to innovators and businesses, as well as the technology that's helping them along the way. If you're new to Climate Rising, then I check out their episode with BGC, that is Boston Consulting Group. Going green may sound easy, but for the companies that operate globally or have thousands of suppliers, it can take a lot of planning. You'll learn how BCG is using artificial intelligence to help their clients accurately measure and reduce their carbon footprint. So don't miss it. You can listen to Climate Rising on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the behavioral market is pretty mature, and it's been running for quite some time. You know, when I think of behavioral, a lot of time it's home energy reports, which, you know, people get a piece of paper in the mail that shows how much energy they use, and and that's all well and good. But how do you think behavioral programs need to evolve, or do they need to evolve to stay relevant going forward? Yeah. For a while, I worked for a, a consulting company called Illum Advising, 
And actually, that was a great place for a linguist and an anthropologist because they do a lot of um, ethnographic research for utilities and for the energy space. Um, and uh, there were actually some linguists and anthropologists uh, on their research team. So I was with my people again and my tribe, and it was, it was a really happy place. Um, but one thing I learned from them was they always tried to put in, um, I guess, safeguards against like bias and inequity in the way they you know, consulted on program design with utilities. So in, in all, a lot of these behavioral programs, we started with just like getting a broad picture of consumers' relationship with energy. And then pretty quickly, you need to get to um, the segments, right? And the types of utilities. So like if you look at um, the way behavior behavioral approaches have evolved. We're getting a lot more sophisticated in our industry of like who those user segments are and what is driving that behavior. So you do have to take into account the local economics, the cultures, age groups, like all of these sort of defining factors that change your relationship with energy and energy usage, right? So I think that is a great way that behavior is getting more sophisticated um, or, you know, behavioral approaches are getting more sophisticated. Um, and I think now, especially with, we're looking at a lot of um, like this IRA funding, IRA, IIJA funding that's coming down. Uh, a lot of them have Justice 40 principles um, built in, which is trying to ensure that the benefits of these programs and solutions that are funded will go first to communities that are highly impacted by um, environmental injustice, uh, pollution, and just the negative effects of the fossil fuel economy, right? So if you're going to do that, I mean, you do have to be sophisticated and have good ways of checking for bias and ensuring inclusiveness in your data collection, figuring out culturally relevant and appropriate ways to engage communities and to listen to people. So I think all of that kind of consideration, even down to the personal level of human behavior, is important. And it's a it's been a great evolution in this industry. In your current role at Salesforce, you work with utilities to digitize their operations and processes, which sounds like a lot of fun, um, maybe a bit <laughs> jargony. Uh, what exactly does that mean? I think you and I know how much utilities still keep all of this a lot of their data in different buckets and silos. And then a lot of their processes are done on spreadsheets and with people handing packets of paper to each other with wet signatures and things like that. So uh, I know a lot of utilities want to change that. And, you know, the big um, CAS providers have been trying to move utilities to the cloud as well, just to, to make all of this um, more streamlined and give you single sources of truth and not, you know, having to go into the office and log on to a PC to move somebody off of one rate to another and all this, right? Um, that really accelerated with um, the pandemic when everyone, you know, was finding virtual ways to work. It's also gone into, you know, field and mobile workforce management as utilities are like having to be a lot more responsive and using sensor data and all this stuff. So there, there really is uh, an interest now and a need for digital platforms that are cloud-based and secure and all this stuff. So you said that moving to a digital world goes hand in hand with a clean distributed grid. Why is that? I'll give a concrete example of, um, I just spent a few days in December with um, 
our customer, Con Ed, and talking with um, some of their data leaders on what the role of data and um, digital automation plays in their ability to meet their clean energy goals um, and their net zero goals. And the specific ways it comes into play are where the rubber meets the road. For instance, they have an aggressive timeline for getting heat pumps into all of these apartments, multifamily units, and public housing. And just the application processing time for that is crazy. And they were doing a lot of duplicative work with somebody uh, enrolling for one program would be like an automatic shoe in for another program, um, but they would have to like do the same enrollment process like repeatedly, you know, to, to do that. So they were finding ways to, via digital, digitalization and automation, and then da- better data management, um, being able to do like an enrollment validation process once and then rinse and repeat, just like do that for all the other programs that it was also relevant for. And, you know, you don't have to to be uh, scattershot about it. You know exactly which programs, you know, this also applies to. So it's, it's just a good way to think about um, the data being centered around the customer. Your technology and your processes can reflect your actual intention to be more customer-centric, right? There's ways that you can um, structure your technology using digital tactics to make sure that your you know, operations truly are customer-centric. So the uh, shift towards digital is obviously a huge transition for utilities. I mean, we're talking many billions of dollars you know, being spent on these efforts. So obviously a lot of capital is at stake. But um, if this isn't done correctly, what else is at stake? What do we potentially miss out, miss out on if we're not able to successfully digitize utility operations? It's just timing, really, right? Like, can your business model as a utility and your operational models keep up with what consumers and really your communities and all these other stakeholders like transportation sector, manufacturing sector, building envelopes, like all all of these other stakeholders? Can your utility business operations and revenue models keep up with what all of these stakeholders demand as we try to accelerate our clean energy adoption and transition. A lot of that really is um, dependent on people and their intentions to maybe like work with communities on getting rid of fossil fuel power plants in their communities and replacing that with, you know, distributed energy sources and other things, right? So a lot of that relies on human intention, but if you don't have uh, a good um, technology platform to facilitate that communication and, you know, streamline a lot of those um, processes and relationships, then, um, you know, you just lose time, right? And you should be working on building trust, but it shouldn't be hard to, to do it. What is the superpower you bring to the energy transition? Is there like a superpower for like, hey, you're working on this, you're working on this. Let's, how can we do this together? I think that's my super. Maybe it's spinning webs. There you go. I think listening in this day and age is in itself a superpower because not a lot of people seem to do it. So uh, listening and connecting, I think, is is spot on. Um, 
Very cool. Sharon, thank you so much. Um, loved having you on the show uh, and appreciate all the work you have done and are doing to get us where we need to be. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. With Great Power is produced by Gridex in partnership with PostScript Media. Delivering on our clean energy future is complex. Gridex exists to simplify the journey. Gridex is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, and Camille Stennis from PostScript Media. Ann Bailey is our story editor. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Marquand. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If you like the show, and we really hope you do, please help us spread the word. You can rate or review us at Apple and Spotify, and you can also share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks again for listening. I'm Brad Langley.